achievement and fulfillment are different and and they can feed each other they're related to each other but they aren't the same thing welcome to the business of doing business i'm your host Dwayne carrigan with 35 years in business and close to 30 ventures across 12 industries i've seen a lot amid the celebrity allure of entrepreneurship many exceptional entrepreneurs remain shadowed here, I team up with these hidden talents to unveil their challenges and successes. Dive in with me to unearth entrepreneurial gems, learn from our experiences, and get educated. Sam Hazeltine, welcome to the show. Love having you here. Uh, Queenstown, New Zealand, extreme uh, ski champion, becomes medical doctor, becomes entrepreneur and opens up and grows the largest medical recruiting staffing company in Australasia. Then you lobby the World Medical Association to include wellness, doctor's wellness, in the Hippocratic Oath. And then uh, tech startup guru. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, Shut down, good. I think. Did I condense everything and get it all, go, all in? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed. Thank you so much for being here, buddy. I really appreciate it. That's no, good to be here, mate. For the audience, we've known each other 12, 14 years now. We're in the same mastermind group. You know, we've spent a lot of time together. We've had lots of deep conversations. I'm super glad to have you here because not only are you extremely talented in business, you know, you've really gone through the whole ringer when it comes to entrepreneurship. So thanks. I appreciate you being here and spending your time with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to seeing what we cover. You know, what's interesting is I was kind of, you know, prepping for this, kind of was a little bit lost on me about the extreme skiing. I kind of forgotten about that. It was in the past. How does extreme skier become doctor, become entrepreneur? Where's that journey kind of begin and how does it follow through? I think that all my life, I have wanted to push things to limits, to find those limits and to expand upon those limits. And for me, the first area that I did that was in skiing. You know, I started skiing in the 90s back when uh, skiing wasn't particularly cool. Snowboarding was the cool one. They had the baggy pants and, you know, skiers sort of had the tight pants and drank mulled wine. But I was a skier. And so it was part of a, a, a sort of a, a resurgence of skiing. It was sort of the birth of what we call free skiing now. And, you know, we were pushing the limits. And it was an amazing time because there was so much that skiers couldn't and hadn't done, you know, in terms of jumps and, and tricks and things that it was a great time to push what and see what was possible, but, you know, for, as an individual and be part of, you know, as individuals were able to master new things very quickly, everyone would then catch up to that space and then, you know, keep pushing from there. And so for me, skiing was something that it was my life. I loved it, but it was a training ground for what's next. And I think that Sport is a great opportunity to do that, but sport in and of itself is not the end game. You don't want to peak at 20. And so taught me to both put the work in, to be prepared to fail, to fail a lot, 
just keep getting back up and pushing on. And then I was able to, you know, take that, you know, first into my medical career and then beyond that into business. I mean, when you first told me, I remember you told me you're many years ago that you were an extreme skier and I kind of just put it in a bit of a bucket. You're one of these extreme skiers that jumps out of a helicopter on a native, never been skied before face of a mountain. Can you explain it? Because I can't do it justice. Extreme skiing is essentially in the back country, skiing lines, you know, you're judged based on how difficult the line is essentially and, and how fluidly and how quickly you can do it. We go into places where if you fall, you die. And for someone like me, who, you know, for a long time in my life, struggled with being present in the moment, always looking for what's next, was always future focused. For someone like me, that was the only way, well, that and alcohol at the time, well, that was the only way I could actually bring myself to here and now. Because if you're in a situation where if you fall, you die, you better be aware, you, be, you better have your attention. And I, and I love that. I love the freedom that came with uh, thinking about nothing else, about with being present and at the same time as being present, being called upon to do things that you'd never done before uh, and to, do, to push yourself and to take yourself to levels that you sure as hell better be able to uh, show up. It's crazy to think take the wrong line and you're dead skiing. I mean, I've skied in backcountry, Western Canada, but this is next level. How does an extreme skier decide, okay, I'm going to become a medical doctor and then work with patients in a hospital, which is a pretty controlled environment. So, I mean, to me, they're, they're kind of both ends of the spectrum almost, or at least they appear to be, unless you're in an ER situation and you're dealing with, you know, people dying constantly. Yeah. I think something about, you know, particularly extreme sports is they're a great place for a younger person. They're a great place to find what you're capable of. They're a great place to push yourself. Um, and I think it's really important that you have to know when it's time to move on from that. I've spoken to a number of people. You know, I've got a lot, a few friends who have just stuck with it you end up dying eventually because at some point, you know, you bet the ranch enough, at some point you lose the ranch. And that's almost inevitable if you, if you don't know when to sort of shift gears. And I've spoken to a number of people, you know, people who are still doing it and then the people who also move out. And the conclusion I came to, the people who are still doing it are searching for something. There's a hole that they aren't filling and they'll never fill with extreme sports because I don't think you can. The wiser ones, I think, the, essentially the, the, the thing is you, you don't know when the end will be, but you'll know when that comes. You should know at what point it's no longer useful or, or sensible to keep risking your life. You know, for me, that came with a couple of head injuries and I took stock and realized that, you know, for the, you know, I'd done what I wanted to, I set out to do in skiing. I became New Zealand champ. I qualified for the world tour. I had a couple of head injuries and, you know, after the second one with the week in hospital, I made the decision that, you know, this was now the risk well outweighed the reward. You know, at this point I was a final year medical student and it was, you know, time for me to set my sights on what was next uh, and not just be one of these people who just keeps, put, you know, betting the ranch until you lose the ranch. It was difficult. 
it involved, you know, one of the one of the head injuries um, while I was in a coma for a couple of days and hospital for a month. You know, that was the impetus for me to realize that alcohol was no longer serving me. Um, you know, I used to drink heavily and abuse it. And it, again, as I said, I looked back on it and I realized that was because I was trying to quiet the mind. And alcohol was one way to do that. Um, extreme sports was another. So the, the one head injury, this is while I was uh, at medical school. I, you know, coma, parents got a phone call saying, you better get to need and we don't know if your son's going to come out of this coma. You know, it was, it was pretty serious. Uh, and I did come out of the coma and I was given a second chance. And for me, I realized that alcohol was no longer, could no longer be the, uh, the tool of choice to sort of quieten the mind. It was the impetus to stop alcohol. The second head injury, and I was, you know, alcohol free at that point, but the second one I was, you know, I was knocked out and I think had a seizure on the mountain and then was in hospital for a week. That was then, okay, this is no longer serving, you know, the, the pushing the limits with the extreme sports is no longer serving me. And that was the, you know, change gears and, and, and get stuck into medicine. And, and it's quite difficult because extreme sports, as I said, was a, was a forced way to become present, just giving it up. Uh, is difficult and so you have to find different ways to focus yourself and become present and for me initially it was through achievement uh it was through becoming a doctor becoming a good doctor and then you know seeing an opportunity where i could see a lot of my classmates leaving the profession becoming disillusioned with medicine and, and leaving the profession and i thought well okay there's an opportunity here to help doctors create a lifestyle in medicine and 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 from there i thought if they find what they love about it they can re-engage with the profession um, and, and be good doctors. And, you know, that was the birth of MedRecruit, which is now the largest medical staffing agency in, in Australasia. You'd mentioned about friends being disillusioned with the medical industry. Was your push to go into entrepreneurialism and start a company, was it because you were disillusioned with, and I, I'm, I'm sure... New Zealand probably faces the same kind of issues and concerns that many medical industries in many countries uh, face. But uh, what was the driver there? Yeah, there were, there were two drivers. For me, one, look, I think when you train as a doctor, and we've had discussions about healthcare, but I, you know, I think when you train as a doctor, you're always a doctor. There's a collegiality there. There's a loyalty to our profession. And so for me, having trained as a doctor, you know, I wanted to do something positive within my profession because, you know, I'm not interested in, in necessarily outside of healthcare. So I, I wanted to make a difference. I could see what was happening in the, you know, with the doctors. It's much, much worse now in terms of burnout and things. One driver was I want to, you know, have an impact, um, improve the health of medicine, leave it better than I came into it. Uh, and then the second, going back to that original point was, you know, and I wanted to see what I was capable of. I wanted to push myself to see, you know, to see how far I could go, again, like in skiing, but in business, how far could I take a business in terms of, you know, a startup with just, you know, just me to, um, you know, how could I build a multinational organization that did two things, you know, served a purpose. And, you know, improve the health of medicine, leave it better than we found it, and was also a really effective, good business. Uh, even today, actually, I had this morning, I had a conversation with a, a young woman reached out to me and was talking to me about her career uh, as an engineer and 
wanting to, you know, being or not necessarily wanting to, she was struggling with the option for her to go into business and switch from engineering and go into get her own business and, and do her own thing that way. And I'm curious, you know, being a doctor, it's an esteemed profession. It's respected. It has got an immense amount of certainty wrapped around it. And I have to think that there must have been some difficult thoughts and decision processes that had to occur for you to decide to, not that you, I mean, you don't give up being a doctor, but to go and pursue entrepreneurship and, you know, leaving the comfort for the risk. People ask me that a lot at the time. And for me, it was not once an issue. I think that extreme skiing taught me that risk can be mitigated. The The best skiers uh, in that field are not stupid. If you're stupid, you get broken on the way. You'll never get to the top if you can't assess the situation uh, and, and make considered decision. Uh, and then also in the face of risk, show up because it's also not about avoiding all risk. You can't do that. But, you know, if you're in a situation where you've been dropped by helicopter and, you know, you're, in, you're skiing a line, if you fall, you die. Well, you better, you know, you better have done the work in terms of physic physically, in terms of mentally, uh, psychologically, in terms of your gear, making sure your bindings are set to the right thing, setting, you know, things like that. You can do a lot. And then there's still that beautiful part of, and you have to show up. And, and so for me, starting the business, there, there was never a moment of, oh, I'm leaving something behind. I just felt like I was walking a path that I was supposed to walk, that there was a job that needed to be done, a utility that I could provide that I needed to step into. So I've never had a fear about what I've left behind because I've never actually, from my perspective, left behind being a doctor. I've just stepped into a different role in healthcare. And I've never doubt. I, I honestly, I've never doubted it the entire way. I mean, there's been ups and downs. You know, there's been, you know, times where I remember when we started building this house and the business had fallen off a cliff, and I was losing six figures a month. But not once in that stage have I wanted to quit or give up. Uh, I remember I was at an entrepreneurial event, and someone was talking about, you know, the mindset of entrepreneurs, and you know, we, we must have all wanted to quit at points, and everyone was, and I was like, well, I haven't. Of two things. I've got a mission that needs to be achieved and we're a long way from achieving it. Uh, and second, you know, if you quit, you don't really find out what you're capable of. And so I think that's something, you know, we, I set up the business back in 2006 and that unwavering self-belief um, and commitment to walking a path, no matter how long it takes, has been really powerful in terms of, you know, what we're now creating. And, you know, when you think about growth or anything in a business, a lot of growth can be exponential and exponential growth doesn't look like much at the start. So you, you, you have to walk, you have to be prepared to pay the price and walk that path before you really start to see the rewards. I mean, we've grown, you know, as I said, consistently since we started, except for a three year period where we went backwards quite, quite, quite fast. And then we've grown every year since then. And, you know, it's really only in the last few years that we're really starting to see the rewards of that work. We were the largest medical staffing agency. We were up 70% last year. So we are now really 
charging forward in terms of adding value to the healthcare profession. And, you know, I see it that, you know, with scale, you have that opportunity both to, 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 you know, to have a bigger impact, but also to have more that you can invest back into the business, back into the platform. And that's where we've gone into technology to build something that, you know, you know, changes uh, the game in terms of, you know, healthcare staffing. So you talked about, you know, never wanting to give up on business, never wanting to quit. Same way with the 35 years or more that it's been more than 35 years, but I've blown up my bank account more times than I probably want to. Uh, I've made unbelievably massive mistakes from a strategic standpoint, a, you know, staffing standpoint. I mean, I've made them all, but not once. And I, and I've, I've, had bad businesses that, you know, we've shuttered, you know, shuttered and, and moved on to something else. But I've never once thought in my life that I would stop playing this game. Can you just give some perspective? You started basically from scratch. It was a startup. You didn't buy a business. You started from scratch. You get an idea. What's the initial idea? Just so people can have some perspective that are listening and how long you've been in business running MedRecruit and kind of what the, the curve was. Yeah, I had a relatively fortunate start into business. I mean, I, I saved up $40,000 working as a doctor and I put all that into the business and it's a medical staffing business and I was a doctor. So I still had the opportunity to, uh, you know, with the way I got in with a lot of the hospitals, medical staffing was a bit different back then. It's a lot more rigorous now and much higher levels of compliance as there should be compared to when I started it. But the way I got in with a lot of hospitals and developed those relationships was essentially, you know, by saying, well, if I can't get you a doctor, I'll be there myself. And so, you know, I'd work on the business every week, Monday to Friday, and then often on a Friday afternoon, I'd jump on a plane and head out, you know, to a hospital who was, you know, in, in desperate need. I, I would go and do a lot of jobs that were well beyond my capability. Fortunately, nothing went wrong, but, uh, you know, it was a way for me to build those relationships and build that trust. It meant hospitals more and more could, you know, realize that they could rely on you know, me and the business. Building those, you know, there was two things. One was if you get the doctors, then you have what the hospitals need. And the second was build those relationships so the hospitals trust you. And so, you know, in terms of getting the doctors, you know, I threw myself into learning about marketing and direct marketing in particular. And so, you know, we, we definitely came in as the challenger. There was a company with a monopoly on the market. Well, there was two companies with a duopoly, as I should say. And, and we were the challenger brand. So we came in and we essentially, for the first few years, were flipping the bird at the, uh, at the established medical way of doing things questioning this, you know, sacrifice your life for your, for your job. We did that for a few years until I sort of realized that we were now getting bigger. And, you know, essentially I was still flipping the bird at the people who were paying us, who were the hospitals. And so we realized we needed a bit more of a, a considered elegant approach, I would say, <laughs> to how we approach things. And so it started with, you know, this challenger brand, you know, tying, you know, getting the doctors to trust us. And then we, we really wanted to, like genuinely and also perception, move into more standing alongside and advocating for healthcare 
as opposed to just advocating for the doctors within the healthcare because you can't advocate for the individual without actually trying to advocate for a better system. And that's what then led me into research. And it was my research that tied, you know, found one and two doctors back, you know, over a decade ago were in burnout. That causes depersonalization and emotional disconnection from patients. And that, you know, and that directly causes an increase in major medical errors. So, you know, I tied burnout to errors. And, and that was when I really sort of got a second head of steam to go like, this is no longer okay. You know, I used to call it medicine's dirty little secret. There's nothing secretive about it now. So I set up MedWorld at that point to advocate for doctors and to continue to research. And I used MedWorld as the platform to lobby the World Medical Association to amend the modern day Hippocratic Oath Declaration of Geneva to include the health and well-being of doctors. And so I think that that continued focus on not just putting bums in seats through staffing, but actually we want to make healthcare better and advocating for doctors and, and for the people within healthcare. And then, you know, changing the modern day Hippocratic Oath has given us, you know, good social license to be part of the solution about what's next. And that's what we've been working on, you know, now, which is, you know, what's next? How can we build an operating system to support people in healthcare? And I'm really excited about that because, you know, if I look at healthcare staffing, it hasn't really changed since I started the business back in 2006. And I think, you know, we're at intersection now of certain technologies that can lead to, you know, real improvement in terms of both how doctors manage their careers, how we manage for the well-being of healthcare staff and, and, and how healthcare organizations staff their, their hospitals. I mean, thanks for the condensed version of, you know, a, it sounds like a 17-year journey. My interpretation is, is that you started this business as, you know, me, Inc., or, you know, you, Inc., if you will, and you are the product, you are the chief cook and bottle washer type of thing, doing it all yourself. I'd be curious, you know, some of the lessons, like I really admire your thinking and your analysis to things. You have a really unique mind and the way you look at things. So maybe share with us, you know, the process of growth. And then you had also talked earlier about getting to your your business to the point where it was losing six figures a month. But I'm interested in that journey to the point, you know, right before you start losing that money and, and, you know, just maybe what would have been the biggest influences or learning lessons that you had to overcome, whether it was overcoming you personally or what you had to learn in business to really start to gain traction from a U Inc business to, uh, I've got, you know, clients, I've got people, I've got systems, I've got processes. This is now starting to get a little bit, you know, bigger than just me. What would that look like? Let me approach that from a slightly different angle than just answering the question, because Absolutely. Uh, today is a pretty reflective day for me. Yesterday, I, sorry, but still pretty emotional about it. Um, yesterday, I was at the um, funeral of a friend of mine. Uh, Dr. Tom Mulholland, who took his own life a week and a half ago. And, and yesterday on this, you know, the same day, and I knew, we knew this was coming, but quite in quite a different sort of way, you know, my uncle, who I was very close to, Sir Tim Wallace, um, died. 
And so, you know, it's one of those, one of those pause and reflect type of days. And, you know, I was thinking about both these men and, and, and their deaths and, you know, they, they were, the, the, the deaths were world apart. You know, you've got one man who took his own, you know, and he was Dr. Tom. He was called, he was, this, he was the attitude doctor. He was an advocate for mental health. He wrote books on mental health. He was an incredible guy who was trying so hard to make a positive difference. Obviously, we don't understand exactly why, but, you know, for him, it got to a point where he couldn't see that and, and he took his life. My uncle, Sir Tim Wallace, uh, who passed away yesterday and I went and saw him last week and said goodbye to him. He died at 85. He lived a long life. He died surrounded by family. And so it was a very different, uh, a very different death. You know, it was, it was as far as ways to go. You couldn't really ask for much more. And I was thinking about both these men because they were huge men. They were both well-known. They were both visionary pioneers. Um, Dr. Tom, <laughs> Tom was the first person in the world. He set up a company, you know, before its time, before technology was maybe right there called Dr. Global. And he was the first person in the world to do a, a, a consultation over the internet. My uncle Tim, he pioneered deer recovery. He, you know, had a huge impact in terms of agriculture in New Zealand and also in aviation. They were both men of action. They were both men who just relentless action. They both had families that they loved and cared for. You know, Tom wasn't by himself. He had a partner. He had two, you know, three kids. Uh, he had friends. He had people who loved him. Both also had their demons and mental health challenges. Uh, some, you know, Tom went through his pretty openly, but, you know, they both had their, their challenges and they were, you know, they were huge men who, who just, you know, commanded attention and people loved them. The reflection is, is, and what was the difference? Well, the difference was the ability to pull together people, a team to, you know, realize their visions. Somehow Tim was able to do that. You know, he, he's built large organizations, you know, who've had huge impacts. Tom didn't quite manage to do that. Tom, well, he had the ideas. He had visions well beyond where we were right now, but there was a, a delta between his ability to, to see things and then have the patience to bring things to, to, to bear. That difference, that one difference, I believe is the difference between being able to have a vision and being able to take that vision as, as far as you, you, you think you can and you want to. And so, you know, for me, if I look at my life, you know, it, it, there's been a few phases and those phases I think are really, really important. Visionaries, pioneers, they start in a similar place. They're by themselves just going after things. You know, that's, there's a phase where you just strive and where you have to just pay the price. And that price means, you know, doing all the things, whether you like them or not. One of our, both of our mentors, Keith Cunningham, said structure is the price entrepreneurs have to pay for success. There's a piece there where you're striving, where you really have to pay the price of success. You have to put in place the things and do the things that you don't like or want to do if you want to achieve. For me, that phase in my life was a huge phase of personal development. Um, Tony Robbins, you know, that sort of mindset phase of life. My favorite book at that point was Think and Grow Rich, you know, and I just worked my ass off. I worked 14 hours a day, seven days a week. 
And I did, you know, the things I love doing, but I spent probably most of the days doing things that, you know, weren't necessarily what I wanted to do. The following up and the admin and the invoicing and the, you know, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. But, but, but I paid that price and that got the business off. You know, that, that took us from zero to 24 million in revenue. And then we fell off a cliff. We went from 24 million to 21 million to 14 million. And that was the point where we were losing six figures a month. And so for me, that was where I had to change gears, where, you know, where I had to realize that striving, that visualization, that all that sort of jazz wasn't enough. And so for me, that next phase was about getting smart and strategic. Um, my favorite book at that point is a book um, called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard Rommel. And, you know, that was where I, I, I really learned strategy. And essentially, strategy boils down to, you know, much like medicine, diagnosis and treat. Strategy starts with what is the problem you're trying to solve, and then you build a governing approach to that problem, and then you build a plan from that governing approach. And, you know, rather than, you know, the vision and marketing and everything that I'd done that had grown the business, I had to get real about strategy. And, the, you know, the, the problem I was solving was actually, we're not very good at recruitment. We're a recruitment business. And so the governing approach came, was bring in recruitment expertise. So I brought in a man, Neville Andrews, who was almost 30 years in recruitment. And his job was to help us to become good at recruitment. And, you know, for me, you know, we were a few months into that relationship and we were sitting down and I said, you know, Neville, what I've realized is that, you know, you and I are never going to be happy together. Um, we're always going to be trying to move faster than you want to. And it's always going to be too slow for me. And so as long as we stay unhappy, we're probably in the sweet spot. That was the price then was, okay, trust Neville and execute on becoming good at recruitment and not change strategy, not do new brands and new this and new that, like just execute on a strategy for once. It was a quick turnaround. We went from 14 million to 32 million um, in a single year. Like we leapt back, but it was, there was a lot of pain to get to that point. And I remember, you know, someone coming to me in the business going, this is terrible. You know, people are leaving in droves. And I was, you know, you've got to change. This is, I was like, good, keep it going. You know, the lesson I learned there is you can't change a culture just by bringing in new people. A culture changes through both new people and losing people. And so we executed on that and we executed well for a period of time. This year we'll do over 200 million in revenue. It's a wee way on from there, but you know, it's going well. So, so that to me was a key part of my business lessons was, okay, learning, you know, th there's a point where you at the start, you just have to do everything and you have to pay the price. But then there's also a point where you've really got to start saying, what can I and only I do better than anyone else? And how can I bring in other people to not, you know, not, how, not how do I mitigate my own weaknesses? But how do we just not focus on my weaknesses and bring in people who are really good at that? And over time, you know, I've you know, put, put myself more and more in a position where what can I and only I do? Well, my job in the business now is the overall strategy and it's the vision and it's bringing that vision to life through the product. I now have a, a person who runs the business operationally. He's far better. Richard Clark is far better than me operationally at running teams, at executing on the, on the strategy. We're going really, really well as a result of, of that combination. And so, you know, I, and if I look back to, you know, the lessons again from yesterday and thinking about that is like, if you can't bring a team 
together and over time stop doing the things that you don't enjoy, if you're still doing the things that you don't enjoy 15 years into the business, that, that's going to take a toll. You know, we can do it for a period, but we can't do it forever happily. And so, you know, we have to, I think, walk a path where we shed the things that we aren't necessarily good at or that we don't and that we don't enjoy. But we have to shed them through building an organization that adds increasing value so that, you know, you can afford to do that. And I think that that to me is, is a huge lesson. Uh, and, and then beyond that, there's, a, there's another phase where I've sort of entered into in my life, which is, and beyond business, what's next? Because through all that time, you know, as I said, quietening the mind, there was no quiet, it was all future focused, there was no presence, you know, through the time I got married and had two children and we'd separated. And, but I wasn't present and I had no inner peace and, and, and I couldn't say I was happy, I wasn't unhappy. But I just wasn't enjoying life. I didn't have that sense of inner peace. And so for me, the next phase after that sort of striving and then strategic, you know, getting smart was learning how to let go, uh, learning how to quiet the mind, how to be present, learning how to, you know, the realization that more achievement is not going to lead to happiness. You know, there's a point where you've got at some point have got to got to realize that that actually came to me at a point I was standing in my driveway and got a nice house and I was looking at my I had a Mercedes at the time I was looking at that and I caught myself and I was like shit it's gonna be great when I get a Lamborghini and I caught myself and I was like fuck <laughs> Sam that is a stupid stupid thing to be thinking like who gives a shit about what cars you have I like cars but whatever you should not be putting your happiness you should just enjoy where you are right now no, sorry. So that letting go has been hugely important for me. And for me, that's been, you know, my favorite book at the moment or, you know, in the last little while is by Michael Singer, Untethered Soul. Meditation has been so important, uh, so important, daily meditation now for years. And then, you know, going beyond that, um, you know, in terms of, you know, finding those different levels of healing as, you know, we, I don't know if you talked about that, but, you know, with, through psychedelics and through other areas to find that deeper level where you know you are okay and have always been okay you just took the lid <laughs> off the barrel there buddy like for, uh so first and foremost and we've talked about this already but my condolences and blessings to you and to your friends families and and god be with them and and so that's the most important i'm gonna try to chunk this down a little bit i think you brought up a really good you know point about mental health and the stress and the pressure that entrepreneurs put on themselves to perform, whether it's the, whether they're, whatever their motivation is, whether they're performing for themselves, whether they're performing for the people who are, you know, they believe are lo looking at them and judging them or whether it's for their family or their kids or whatever it is. But there is a pressure out there with entrepreneurs who are you know, in the situation where they are, um, you know, a, a me ink type of environment, it's just them or maybe them and one other person, and they are doing the 14 hour days, seven days a week. Uh, and they're looking, you know, to get past that. And I think you kind of delved into two things one, which is there's process and systems. And then there's, there is, and you spoke about this with the skiing, which there's a psychology that keeps us moving forward. And I think, you know, sometimes 
you know, use another from our mentor, Keith Cunningham, is, you know, we have to put processes and systems and people in place to protect me from me. And so as a, you know, single entrepreneur with a small business where you were and you started, and, and I'm, I'm going back to this because I've seen you grow your business to, to you know, it's, I mean, it's a huge business. It's a really big business. And so the beginning, I'm curious, is there a psychology piece for you in there? I guess this would be maybe two, two points to the psychology piece. One that, you know, you had to maybe move your own personal obstacles that were holding you back from growing your business originally, or whether maybe there was not something that was holding you back, but maybe there were some distinctions that helped you realize that helped propel you forward. Uh, that'd be one. And then the second was that pressure of, you know, having a business, having a young family, and you're all alone and you're doing it yourself. Did that come into play in the beginning? in the early stages. And I'll get through the life cycle that you've just kind of laid out. But, but, uh, but in the beginning, I'd like to just, if you could throw in maybe a couple of real distinctions. I mean, when you go into business, so everyone goes in with different, I guess, hopes and, and dreams for their business. And so what's really important is, you know, that my playbook is, is not necessarily everyone else's playbook, but I can just speak to my playbook. I'm not here to give advice or tell anyone how to live. So for me, I went in being very clear that you know, I wanted to change my industry. I wanted to be a multinational business and, you know, and I wanted it to be both, you know, financially successful and also a business that I, you know, could more and more do what I loved in the business. So I've been very clear on that. It, you know, again, going back to those lessons with, you know, Tom and, and Tim is it, it's quite important that we have that uh, in there, which is, and I want it to be a business that I enjoy working in because, you know, what we might be prepared to do at the age of, you know, 28 may not be what we want to be doing at the age of, you know, it's when I started the business of, you know, 44, when I have two daughters. And it absolutely is not what I want to be doing. You know, at the time, um, when I started the business, it was like, I'll pay whatever price. And I think, you know, in, you know, there are, there are a couple of phases of business. And I think it's important that we, we focus on those different phases and, and show up differently. You know, there's traction and the scale. And traction is just getting going. And scale is then taking something and just, you know, growing it, you know, over time exponentially or or, or linear, whatever, but you, you're growing a business more and more into what it is you want it to be. You've got to be clear which phase you're at, but you've also got to be focusing on doing the things to get to the next phase. If you just focus on where you are right now and don't focus on progress, then, you know, there's a good chance, like a lot of business people, in 10 years' time, you'll be doing the same hours, you'll be doing the same shitty jobs, and they're only shitty jobs because they're not what you want to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, some people might love those jobs, but from your perspective, you're still doing the same stuff you don't like doing, and that's going to wear on you. That's going to be exhausting. You're not going to have the financial success you want. You probably you are going to not be enjoying the work, um, and it's going to take a to- it's going to take a toll on you and your family from a mental health and a, you know th- th- from that perspective. You're going to be tired. You're going to get you'll tired. Be ti- you'll be tired. Like, you'll just it'll be, you'll be, it'll yeah, wear be, you down. But you'll be, and you'll be tired, not just physically, be tired at, at your core, at, at your spirit level. What were some of the distinctions for you to scale? Yeah. 
So going back to that sort of traction, you know, I'll go to the traction bit. So, so the traction part is, you know, do whatever you got to do, pay the price. And I think there's, there is a pit there where a lot of people aren't prepared to pay the price. You know, as I said, I work 14 hours a day, seven days a week. Like I was prepared to pay the price. I had a bigger vision that was pulling me forward. So I was happy doing it. I wasn't resentful of it at all. But, you know, I was prepared to do what it took to both run the business and, you know, improve the business so that we could get to that next phase of scale and scaling more and more scale. I think there's a couple of ways you can look at scale. One is scaling, you know, from a, from a customer and a revenue perspective, and that's an important metric of success in a business. Now you've got scaling from an impact perspective. Again, you know, from my perspective, that's an important metric of success. We recently, um, were you know certified as a B corporation, but you know because we we we're happy to be held to account for that purpose as well as from a profitability perspective. But then there's also scaling more and more into the business that you want, the, the role that you want, the how you want to show up every single day. And so you know that first bit is do whatever it takes, but make sure that during that whatever it takes, you are also prioritizing the steps that are going to take it to the next phase. So you can then more and more scale it in, on those three, those three areas and do more and more what you want to do. And so for me, that scale phase, as I you know, speak to Neville, was find the very, very best people to do the roles that you can, you know, that you can afford. And you know, my business now, I've got over 200 staff. We can afford different people. We can afford real specialists. But you can't do that at the start. You've got to find more generalists and you've got to just, you know, you've got to mitigate for that generalist and, and, and help them and encourage them and help them to grow. But, but that's just a reality. You know, when you have a business of, say, 10 or 20 people or, you know, you can't have a full executive team, you're not going to have a CFO and a COO and a chief product officer and a chief people officer. You know, you're not going to have all that. You just can't. But that's for me is why I always wanted to scale because I always felt that if you could retain entrepreneurship, and have the resources from a financial perspective and the people perspective, that's how you really multiply your impact. And so I think going back to that, it's like pay the price, but also make sure you prioritize what's going to take you to that next step. And then for me, that next step, a really key important part is, you know, keep, you know, continue to refine and keep clear on the vision and then bring in the people who can do the things that you aren't the best, you know, that you aren't world-class at. And the more and more you can do that, the more and more that vision comes to life and the more and more you get to do what you want to do and show up how you want in the business. I love it now. I love my role in the business and it's doing better than ever. Like it's, it's really good. Leveraging other people who love the things that you, you aren't necessarily the best at is so important. Yeah. When you were talking there, one of the things that I you know, was thinking about and reflecting on was you know, one of my stall points, my personal stall points in moving my business from a, you know, kind of a me ink or, you know, a few people to larger scale was my ego and my need for certainty that, well, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done properly. Uh, and so I really found that I had to remove that mentality and that, you know, thought process in order for me to get to the next level and grow and start to scale, because until I got rid of that psychology, there was just no scale because I was the one that was really ultimately holding it back. Did you have any of those? Absolutely. So one belief that I, you know, I had, which was wrong, was no one's going to, you know, the whole belief was no one's going to care about the business as much as me. Well, that part's probably true. 
but this part that wasn't believers and therefore they won't do as good a job as me because I cared so much because because no one was going right, to like care about the vision to the extent that I do. I thought, therefore, the jobs aren't going to get done as well. That was incorrect. Someone doesn't have to care about the vision at the same level as me to be far better than me at sales or marketing or accounting or operations or administration. There are a whole lot of things that they can do with a skill set that is far better than mine. And they might care 50% as much on the, uh, uh, the vision as me, but that's fine. So, so that to me was a, a realization when I got to that a few years into the business. I, you know, I, I found myself going, well, you know, I just can't let go. And I sort of did that sort of, you know, thinking, deeper thinking about it. And, uh, you know, that realization was actually, if they're really good at their job, they can do a far better job in all of these areas. And my job becomes, you know, fielding, you know, keep, keeping clear on the vision and fielding the right people to, you know, realize that vision. I know you, you've done some business coaching as well. You, you've done some different programs, uh, boards, that kind of stuff, small groups. What do you think are the core things? I know some people who just can't get past this stage. You know, they've got unbelievably you know, fantastic ideas uh, about how to meet a customer need. They, they have process, they, but they cannot get the business to grow bigger than themselves. If you were talking to somebody who had that problem in their business, what would be the two or three things that you would warn them or advise them to consider or think about as they move forward? At the moment, I've got two areas that I'd focus on. I may come up with another. And the first, as we've, and you've hinted and talked about, you know, the first is the psychology of that person. What ceiling do they have in their head? What limiting beliefs do they have around, around delegation, around building a team, about around themselves and their own abilities? So, so there's that psychology. As related to that psychology is, and actually, where, where are people overestimating themselves? Because I think, you know, so often as you and I have both done, we've overestimated, you know, how, how effective we might be in certain roles. And so you've really got to take essentially an account of your own skills and weaknesses and, and then quite systematically look about not just necessarily, if you can't afford it, then you've got to improve on them. You've got to do your best. But if you can afford it, it's like actually systematically bringing in people to, to mitigate those weaknesses. But the second area is around strategy. I've always believed that, you know, I should be focusing on areas or markets that are big enough to be worthwhile, but are small enough for me to monopolize. If I, all I can do is create a Me Too product and be head to head with, you know, of similar people where there's no network advantage or, you know, there's no moat that I can build, then that's a hard business. Like, you're forever going to be chasing business. You're forever going to be getting your margins squeezed. Uh, and so you're going to be forever under pressure. Whereas if you can pick a, a, a market, and we can define markets by so many different ways. You can think about um, demographics, psychographics. You think about geography. A, a market that's big enough to be worthwhile because, you know, it, it's often... It often interests me how big a market actually needs to be to be able to really invest um, into your business to be a really effective business. 
but also small enough that you can create that monopolistic advantage that that you have a a better reason for doing business with you that there is a network value in terms of that area so that you know, you can provide you know, ever increasing value to customers in those areas so you build a business where the more successful you are the more successful you are the, the bigger you become the more advantageous you are to your clients those are two really phenomenal pieces that i've not really heard before and I, i'm curious if you were to size a market is there a, a size that you like a 50 million dollar market 250 million a half a billion and and maybe you know there's that might change depending on how big your pockets are or how long you've been in business or that kind of thing but it's if you were talking to somebody who's kind of really not starting out but they're struggling and they're trying to identify a market okay so i don't think my answer to that is relevant um i think that cuz it comes down to aspiration it comes down to what price you are prepared to pay, and it comes down to risk appetite. And this is why I'd be hesitant to to give an answer or give my answer to that. I remember someone in in board of directors who I was, you know, essentially chairing their board. She had this incredible piece of IP, and we built her a plan that was, you know, a very executable, scalable plan to grow that business quarter after quarter she came back and just hadn't done anything about it hadn't done anything about it and it was about three quarters into it that I, we sort of just took stock and said what's the actual problem here and we realized that we were building a business that were well, the plan we'd created that i'd created for her was what i wanted to do which is what i would want to do with that which is build a business scale the shit out of the business and become less and less reliant on me <laughs> And whereas actually what she wanted is she loved doing the work and she wanted a team of people around her so she could just do more and more of the work that she loves, completely different from what I want in a business. Right. So for her, the total address or the total market that she could go after would be much smaller than what I'd want to build. I need a business that can, you know, have a few hundred, that can, I need a market that can support a few hundred staff so I can have a full executive team with, you know, high skill levels in every single department. And so, so you know, I, I need a market to go after that's, you know, a total market of more like half a billion to a billion dollars. But, you know, that, that's why I say that, but that's, that's what I want to do. But I didn't start wanting that market. You know, we have, we, as, a, as a business, we continue to like redefine what market it is we're going after so that we can continue, you know, to grow and add value. But I started with a much smaller market that I'm going to try to to really go deep on. And so the answer, I think, is what's a market? You could, and, and again, it comes back to as well the strategic point and there's a spreadsheet part to it. Like, you know, and I think this is where a lot of people fall over is they don't actually build a spreadsheet to go, you know, what is the size of the market? Um, what's it going to cost me to go after this market? What are my margins and how much money can I make out of this? You know, and is that enough to support what I need to reinvest back in the business to grow to that next phase? And, and you know, I would say the majority of, of small business owners don't have that level of clarity because what I generally see is when you get that level of clarity, you realize, most people realize that they're smoking crack, that, you know, they were just building a business on hope and and hoping for the best and actually the market that they're going after was either way too small to support what it is they were trying to do 
or way too big for them to actually make inroads into. Or, you know, there's a fundamental issue in terms of, you know, how they price and how they build margins. That means, you know, the bigger they grow, the less money they're going to make. Like, there's some real basics that you actually have to be able to go, I've got a vision, I've got a strategy, and is there a spreadsheet that says my strategy is a good strategy or not? Because, you know, finance money is the is one of you know it's the lifeblood of business and if if you don't if you're not making money you can't pay your staff you can't pay yourself and you can't reinvest back in to become a more you know valuable business in terms of enterprise value but also in terms of the value you bring to your customers you know th- those are the two areas psychology and then really getting clear on you know it, is the strategy backed by numbers or is it just you know have I been smoking the crack pipe that whole piece about the female business owner uh, you know it's really important for people to understand you know what type of business owner are you what role do you want to play in the business are you i know tony talks about this uh at business mastery and i'm not sure if it's his or if he you know has he's gotten it from somebody else but it's the the artist leader the manager leader or the entrepreneurial leader and you clearly like to be the entrepreneurial leader. You want to be focused on vision. You want to be focused on, you know, creation and, and not necessarily the hands-on implementation. You, you probably want to guide the creative process of implementation, but you really don't want to get into the weeds of knuckling this thing out and trying to make it, the machine run as efficient as possible, which would be a manager leader. And it sounded to me like this girl was, the, you know, the artist leader. Like she wanted to do more of what she loved to do, which is what an artist likes to do. Yeah, absolutely. Her center of of, of mass was artist. Absolutely. For me, it's an artistic entrepreneur. My right hand man now, Richard, he's a managerial entrepreneur. So he's the perfect entrepreneur to lead the business from a management and an execution perspective. Combined with my sort of visionary, uh, you know, artistic, which is, you know, we, we're really diving into the problem that we're trying to solve for the doctors for healthcare and how our solution play out as a result of that. And so, yeah, that's why it comes, you've got to go back to who am I and what role do I want to play? And hopefully, the, what, you know, what I like is also what I'm good at. And we have to be pretty realistic about that too. I think, you know, you know, you talk about people who continue just to struggle, struggle, struggle. Maybe what they like isn't what they're good at. Maybe they're doing what they like, but they're not great great at it. Or maybe, you know, they, they're, they're just spending time on things they're not very good. Yeah, maybe they're, maybe they're stuck in the business of doing something that they, they want to be the artist leader, but they're stuck doing manager leader role. Sure. And they've got to find somebody to take that on for them. And sometimes you see them, they continue to resist paying the price to get to that point. And so that's why I said earlier on, like, we have to know what point we're getting at, which we're trying to get to, because it's different for every single one of us. And then if we have to pay a price along the way, which is doing the things we don't want to do, as long as we're doing that with clarity of mind so that it's moving us a bit more and more and more towards that point that we want to be at, that's kind of the key. This is one of the things that I wanted to make a distinction. It's not a pause, but I just I wanted to really, you know, emphasize this point where one of the things I love most about the game of business is that business is a 
compilation of relationships that are executed, you know, a million times a day, every day, 365 days a year. And the distinction that I wanted to point out here was that in business, what we were talking about right now of being lost in your role or, you know, not putting an effective strategy in, this shows up in parenting. It shows up in you know, your own personal life, it shows up in your intimate relationships. You know, we get stuck in roles like as a parent feeling like, well, uh, you know, I got to be the bad guy or I've got to be the, you know, well, you get to be the fun guy. Like there's, there are relationships and there are, you know, family dynamics and there are things happening, whether you own your own business and you're working for a company, you could take what we just spoke about here, which I think was an incredibly you know, important point about, you know, being stuck and, and knowing, knowing who you are and what it is that you want is so critical. And to you, to the point about the spreadsheet, like having a spreadsheet, having a strategy that helps propel the whole process forward. And you can, I mean, you could take, this is what I love most about businesses. And I, I say this to our management team all the time. And I will so often use an example in business, but then try to relate it to how it could be happening in their personal life. And so I just wanted to stop and just make that distinction because as you were, as you were explaining that bad grammar, but stuckness, you know, that, that, that point where you, (laughs) you get, you get real stuck and don't know your way out is, is a, is really, um, happening everywhere for people. Yeah. It's an interesting distinction, isn't it? And and you know, there's some similarities uh, and there's some core differences. Um, you know, to building a business and being a parent. Let's go with all, all your own personal health, for example. You know, the the similarities is, you know, again that sort of how can I do do more and more of what I and only I can do. You know, so running a household, for example. You know, I don't clean. I don't do my own laundry. I don't. You know, I don't mow my own lawns and stuff, you know, you know, all those things I can pay, you know, someone to do so that I can, you know, be the, be a present dad to my kids, um, you know, take them to their horse events, be it all they're important and they're, you know, they're little unimportant things. You know, to me, that's what I need to do, um, or what I want to do and what's important for me to do. And then there's also the, the, the distinction is, and there's always going to be things you don't want to do and there's a price you have to pay because you can't outsource um, being a parent to the same extent that you can, um, you can build an executive team. You can't build an executive team to raise your kids, is my personal belief. You can't sub the job out to a nanny and a tutor. and a, like You have to show up. And so there's also, okay, there's things that I don't necessarily feel comfortable with, um, but how can I, how can I lean into that discomfort, you know, and whether that's being, you know, I, I, as a parent, you know, I, not trying to be, your, you know, your kid's friend all the time. Um, there's some uncomfortable conversations I have to make. How can I be a bolder parent? There are things that you, you, you can't just outsource and like same with your health. No one else can do your, your own sit-ups. <laughs> Those little machines that you, I tried you stick that. onto, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> I've bought all the bullshit as well. None of them work. You actually just have to do the freaking work. But you know, you know what I mean. Like, so, so there is there are some similarities, which is that mindset of actually how do I how do I shed the things that impact what I and only I can do, 
And then I think that what I and only I can do is a bit broader when it comes to parenting or personal health than it is in business where you really can build an executive team to do the, do, do a lot of the, lot of it. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's true. It's, I mean, obviously it's not exactly the same, but so I, I wanted to, just to draw us back, we, we have not even gotten to the point of where you're losing the money. And the business gets to, I think the number was 24 million, if my memory serves me correct. And it falls, I th- think you said down to 14. And then you go back up to 32. I, I might be a little bit off there, but, you know, and not necessarily so much on the strategy side, but, you know, obviously something happened. You know, decisions were made. Some, you know, something happened. Maybe the environment changed. Competition filtered in, you know, bad execute like bad execution on strategy whatever it was and i think this is the thing when you're in business is like you know you can you can create a plan and try to execute it and and sometimes you don't know if it's a bad plan or it could have been a good plan and bad timing Uh, whatever yeah or you know what got you here is not going to get you there and that, that that was it for me like i became i was very good at marketing um, you know, challenge a brand, you know, challenging the status quo, doing things differently. You know, we had a thing called Dare Doc with Sam. Doctors would on our website vote for me to do things. And so I'm, you know, walk skiing across the lake in a leopard print G-string, things like that. You know, they would just get me to do stupid <laughs> shit. I was good at market. I was a good marketer. And, and, and I was good at building relationships with the hospitals. And because I was a junior doctor, you know, the doctors trusted me. That grew us. We grew on the back of brand positioning and marketing, like like really relentless approach to marketing. Uh, and that got us to a point. And then it got us to a point where then that, and then that like was not, no longer going to keep working. You know, we're now a big enough business where we actually have to be quite good at what we say we're going to be, we're going to do. And that's when we fell off the cliff. And, and so the next phase for me was, was not to throw out the marketing because we continue that and, you know, that's always been a strength, but the next phase was operations. Um, you know, how do we get really good at operations at executing on the promises that we make in our marketing? And so that was a multi-year phase just to, to really get good at that. And then for us now, the, and the next phase now is, is innovation and product and technology. And so it's, again, we're not throwing out operations. We are then, we're building on top of that. So for me, my journey is being get really good at different phases. And then, you know, there's a point where, and that's not going to get you there. And so acknowledging, and obviously when we fell off a cliff, I acknowledged it far too late. And, you know, it was one of the most stressful times in, or was the most stressful time in my business career because we're losing a lot of money. We're going backwards. We just sort of poured the concrete on this house and I hadn't actually lined up debt from the bank because I was like, oh, I'll make money. Don't worry, we'll be fine. <laughs> and so it was a rather stressful period. But, but again, it's like, you know, we have things that we're good at and we have things we aren't good at. I'm good at marketing. I'm good at brand. I'm good at positioning. I'm not great at operations. And that got to a point where that was then the massive limitation. So I had to bring someone in who could then do that. And then we have, you know, we now have, you know, chief product officers and chief experience officer. Like we are now really focused on building really good tech product. Again, I'm not a tech product expert. I can feed into it. I can help field the right team, but then I've just got to 
I've just got to keep them focused on what we're aiming at and prove the health of medicine and get out of their way. In today's environment, raising interest rate, rising interest rates, slowing demand, still difficulties with getting product and distribution. There are probably a lot of people, I know there are a lot of people out there who are in business and the environment is shifting. There, there's some stress. I'm curious, what were some of the tools that you used to, to help you in that time overcome some of your stress? What would be some of the learning lessons that looking back on it in hindsight, you know, what would you have done differently? What are the things that you would have considered or that you did not consider at the time? Because I, I know that right now, you know, this is happening with people. And I think it was just, you know, you, you made the point about it being very stressful. And I mean, I've been there. I've been, I've been to the point, well, more than one time uh, where I can remember, I, I just remember distinctly being in the kitchen of our house and we had made a bet. We had invested a tremendous amount of capital at the time. For us, it was a lot of capital. And the strategy that we laid our bet on did not work out. And I can remember thinking this, this could be the end. I mean, this, we, you know, I remember this ship is going to sink if we don't make some immediate changes. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what some of those distinctions or advice or, or hindsight, you know, virtues were. Well, I guess there's a couple of things. One is how do you handle, manage the stress? The other is how do you show up? And they're, they're, very, they're very much related. And I think when it comes to, you know, handling the stress, I think there are a couple of levels that you can approach it on. You know, one is the more superficial level, which is psychology. Um, it's mindset. It's not, I, I superficial, but it's powerful. But there's a lot of brute force there. There's what meaning are you giving things? There is, you know, and these are all great tools. You know, am I giving an empowering meaning or am I giving a disempowering meaning? Um, how am I showing up from a state perspective in terms of my psychology, you know, my language, my physiology, and my focus? Like the, there are things that I can keep redirecting my focus, redirecting on the solution away from the problem. You know, really, you know, the, there is a bunch of stuff you can do there, and it is hard work. It's, it, it, you know, psych it's a heavy approaching lift. it from a, it's a heavy it's lift. A heavy um, personal development world, you know, we've both been deep in that Tony Robbins world. Um, that personal development is hard work, but it's important work it can help get you through a situation. Uh, and that was really the only tool. I, that was the tool I had back then. It was, okay, you know, shift my focus, shift to solutions, shift to what are we going to do about it? But it was also be smart about it. Actually diagnose the problem. You know, there's a courage piece. It lean into what's the actual problem and how am I solving the problem? And, and I think, you know, as, as re related to that is then, uh, I don't know if it's the right word, but then get ruthless about executing the, you know, there is, you know, people talk about, you know, peacetime leadership and wartime leadership. Uh, you got to know what phase you're in. If you're, if you're at war, I, you know, it's fighting for the survival of your company. You then, then you need to show up probably a little more ruthlessly than you would. If you're in peacetime, if everything's going great, if revenues up, if profits up, like, I think there is a different way of showing up and I, it's important to actually show up those different ways. If you're in a war and you're fighting for your survival, 
You need to get ruthless. You need to get ruthless about cost. You need to get ruthless about the people who aren't adding value, the people who are culturally not right in your business, about customers who are pissing you around, about, you know, about, about your strategy. And are you smoking crack or are you actually being realistic and running this from a spreadsheet? You know, you actually have to become strict on yourself and hold yourself to a higher standard and lean into it. Make tough decisions, not faff around, not spend... 12 months going, am I going to restructure the business because we're losing a lot of money and for 12 months time I'm out of business, make that restructure, Take the, make those difficult decisions, the painful decisions, have the difficult conversations, do what you need to do to survive. But equally, if, you're, if it's peacetime, you know, revenue's up, profit's up, doesn't mean you can be stupid, but you should then show up differently. You know, there are different things you can do when business is going well. Like we, we recently, you know, we don't, it's quite rare down here. It's different up in North America, I understand. But, you know, because we have a good, well, we're not Canada, actually. You're, you're different. It's different from America. You know, we have a great public health system here, you know, but we recently implemented private health insurance for all of our, you know, staff. Why we can, let's do good things for the people. Would I, would I implement, you know, a $300,000 cost if we were, you know, losing money and, and back to the wall? And of course I wouldn't. So, I think, you know, there's a psychology piece where there's a brute force heavy lift and you just got to do it. Um, whether you like it or not, whether you feel good about it or not, you have to do that brute force heavy lift, focus on things that matter, give things an empowering meaning, execute and, and go at it and then be relentless and strict about, you know, and also, you know, from a strategic perspective, diagnose the problem, build a good strategy that's based on a spreadsheet. And then execute the shit out of it over time. Don't just sort of execute it for a little bit and then get caught up in another thing. You know, entrepreneurs, oh, this shiny penny, that shiny penny. Execute over time. That would be the one piece. But the uh, the thing I would also say is there's a much deeper level um, of fulfillment that can be achieved when you start focusing more on your, your spiritual growth. Um, and for me, you know, unlocking that mindfulness has been really important. Meditation has been really important. Seeing thoughts uh, for what they are, thought that you've got your thoughts, your mind and your consciousness and being actually aware of those different areas, not getting caught up in the thoughts necessarily so much. Meditation and then, you know, as you know, we know, you know, finding different levels of healing through, you know, psychedelic healing, things like ayahuasca, um, psilocybin done in the right setting legally in the right places it can be hugely beneficial in terms of finding those areas of healing that you you needed that you never knew you needed uh and for me that's been really important to get out of the brute force heavy lift of managing my psychology all the freaking time and you know for me that's been really important too because prior to doing you know the the meditation and, and, and that psilocybin healing and things it's been very hard to to, to create space between achievement and self-worth. So, you know, my self-worth has been very much related to my achievement, but just creating some space to go, it's not everything. It's not all of me. Yes, it's something that I've done. It's part of who I am, but there's, there's me beyond that. And, you know, that's where I've been of late getting into much longer sort of half-hour breathwork meditations, which really allows me to tap into that, you know, more consciousness, deeper part of myself. And that, that for me has brought, you know, immense amounts of, of inner peace and joy, in fact, not necessarily joy in the last, you know, this last week, but, but actually being able to feel those emotions in a more healthy way. And so, you know, things, things are difficult. We're being called to step up. And, you know, it's important, I think, that we actually think about how we step up 
um, so that we can do it effectively. You know, obviously I know you, but I, but I, you know, just gleaned from what you said there where it was at the time you're, were really personal development focused and there was sounded like there was some later learnings on the, on the, the, the spirituality side of things, which we have shared. We have a lot of shared journeys in spiritual spiritualization and, and, you know, going down that road and, and learning and growing in a different way. At the time, I just, I wanted to, you know, get back to the, you know, the heavy lift and the almost a burden of being the personal development, you know, storybook kind of fairy tale story of like, I'm going to accomplish, I'm going to conquer, I'm going to kick ass, which is, you know, it's, it's very, it's very influential right now on, on, uh, you know, in social media, you see it everywhere and I, I'm not, I'm not being derogatory to it. I think it is very important. There are a lot of people who need that. And there are a lot of people though, who are stuck and it sounded like, you know, you were stuck in there until you found a different path. What were the feelings of being stuck and trying to propel yourself through it? What were the turning points for you to really be able to identify or start down the other path? And the other path by I'm meaning spirituality or or and I and I don't I, want, I don't want spirituality to be taken as religion or it is a whole nother level of peeling back the onion on your personal growth and wellness and mindset. Well, I mean, I can share, I guess, how I've done it. And again, not advice. For me, there has been a level of um, material achievement that's been important for me to get to, to let go of being relentlessly focused on material achievement. Now, the thing about material achievement is that you could just continue to, you know, raise the bar and never be happy. So, you know, we've got it. For me personally, it was about setting the bar high enough. You know, I've got a nice house out in the country. We've got 10 acres. We've got the horses. We can, you know, afford a question, all that sort of stuff. That's, that's great. So it was setting the bar high enough that I would, you know, for me to strive for and to let go of, you know, who knows why we do things? Like, who the fuck knows what happened when we were one, two, three, four, five that is now driving what who we are? And so I think there's a there's an element of going, actually, I'm not gonna figure that out and and maybe don't fight it. You know, so for me, material achievement was an important thing. All right, fuck it. I'll go for it. Um, but then there's also, you've, then you've really got to learn the lesson. When is, it, when is enough enough? When do you, when, when does that not become your sole focus? And for me, you know, personal development, that sort of um, mindset, that heavy lift was really useful for, for, for material achievement for, or just for, for external achievement. But it wasn't particularly useful for internal fulfillment. Yeah, for some people, just as I added that in there, it for some people it's not necessarily material achievement. It could be self worth. You know, they're they're sure. doing something to feel significant in a way that allows them to feel good about themselves. It's rules that we have for ourselves, and and I think you know, 
personal development will sort of, you know, certain say you can make your own rules. You can, maybe you can, maybe you can't. Like, let, let, let's not fight some of these things that are so ingrained in us. Like, maybe it's easier just to lean into it. Uh, but then know, again, when, when do you need to shift gears? And so, yeah, so external, let's call it external achievement. Could be material, could be education, it could be career, whatever. Personal development was good for that. Uh, it was helpful for that and it was a heavy lift. But as I said, it was not helpful when it came to actually, um, you know, internal fulfillment, inner peace and happiness. And, you know, for me, I think a big realization with that was you actually can't think your way. It's impossible to think your way to inner peace and fulfillment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't, you, we're not going to figure it all out. Uh, and the more we try and figure out, the more we're in we're head and, and the more we just, we all live these bullshit stories and the more, and personal development essentially is this world where you try and replace your bullshit story with a less bullshit story, but it's still a bullshit story. We're still making shit up and we're still making up meanings. We're still doing whatever. It's still another fucking story. It's a better story. It's a more empowering story. It may help me show up in the world better. It may help me feel a bit better about myself, but it's still a story. And so for me, the, you know, the more fulfillment and inner peace came from going, how do I go beyond those stories? I'm not going to think my way to happiness or inner peace. So the, if, if that is therefore the case, I, I've exhausted that one to the point from, from the inner peace and the happiness perspective. Then it's like, okay, how do I not be, um, you know, completely caught up in my thoughts? How do I, how can I become more in tune physically through, you know, breathwork meditation? How can I let go and actually catch myself when I find myself trying to figure out what, you know, my friend killed himself a week and a half ago. You know, someone said to me, you know, there's only two people who know why it's him and his maker. And just as I speak to you out now, and it's probably not even him. He probably didn't even know necessarily why we aren't, we, we generally don't figure out why, but what we can do is lean into the here and now to lean into letting go. Uh, and then beyond that, trying to think your way to happiness, there is actually, we've already got a place where we're, you know, we're peaceful, where we're happy. So, you know, it's not without its place. It's, you know, personal development, it has its place. And, and if your back's to the wall, it's, it's a great place for you. You know, if your back's to the wall, that's probably not the time to start meditation. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I would, I always said, fuck off. You know, there's some of these tools are useful if you've been doing them for a while. They're not useful if you just start them when you think you need them. And so, you know, I haven't missed a day of meditation now for about three years um, because it is so important for me to maintain that, you know, that equi equilibrium and, you know, that feeling of inner peace. Now, it doesn't mean that my mind has, isn't still a fucking raving lunatic. It's just that I am able to see that it's a raving lunatic and not attached to all the lunacy all the time. Of course, I get caught up in it at, you know, at times. But there's, there's, there's space. There's space to go. The thoughts and the things are not necessarily me. And you know, I mean, through meditation, it happens all the time. You're like, how the hell am I continuing to come up with stuff? And you know, you know, what I've realized through meditation is my mind is always trying to make things better. So you know, no matter how good my life is, I'll be in meditation. I'll start to think about what I can do better, what, you know, what development I can do, what this. So, okay, great. Acknowledge that it's doing that, but just don't, don't feed it all the time. Yeah. Don't hold on to it. Don't blame it. 
I laughed earlier uh, when you started talking about, I forget what the comment was, but when we talked about inner peace and happiness and all well, that stuff. Well, you can't stuff. think your way to happiness. Well, you can't yeah. think your way to happiness. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. You can't think your way to happiness because I laughed because you were on the phone call when uh, this is, I don't know, this goes back a, long, a few years, uh, where I we, was talking and I said, I, I, I need more fucking joy in my life. Yeah. <laughs> with, with, with such a level of anger. It was beautiful. It was, it was, it was angry joy. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, you know, because I, you're right. I didn't understand. I mean, same. I had kind of a couple tools in my tool belt, which were empowerment, personal development, you know, drive, determination, courage, dedication, all that stuff. I mean, Tony Robbins, you can write, write your rules and write what he means. I mean, it's like, I didn't find that particularly useful because, you know, you can write your rules, but you don't believe them. Like, the, you know, the, to an extent. Well, and I think, you know, I mean, yeah, and you, you, maybe you could train them, maybe you can, but at the end of the day, um, it is a tool in your tool belt. And when you, like you said, when your back is to the wall, trying to meditate your way through it may not necessarily <laughs> be the it certainly can't be the only strategy. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. And, and so uh, it's been an interesting journey from the spirituality standpoint. One of the things that I would, you know, for me, and, I, and it, it's, it's, it's a path of exploration, I think, for everyone. But for me, one of the things that I had to do was come to terms with loving my wretched self. Uh, that's what I call it, loving my wretched self, which is, is, you know, when you see yourself in that meditation and you go and you, your mind starts to drift and you start to think, oh, I could do this, 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 and that, you know, we judge ourselves or we, you know, get angry with ourselves or we are, are shameful of ourselves for thinking those thoughts when it's like, oh, I should be thinking. It's like, no, just acknowledge it and let it, let it go by. Uh, and and don't attach to it. Don't own it. Don't you know? It's it is a piece of you. It is not all of you. You know, I've heard you say that loving your Richard self. For me, it's sort of it's more of a uh, I'm kind of amused by my by my by my lunatic self, right? Um, and so you know, it's more sort of seeing seeing the humor in the fact that you know that wee guy. He's just gonna. He's always gonna be looking for problems to solve. It is what it is. That's that's what he does. But that's not necessarily me all the time. Seeing sort of some humor in that, it creates less of a charge around it. And again, like yourself, so it's less of a charge around judging. I mean, we, you know, if, if you if you look at the thoughts that we have, and you if you were to say some of them out loud, like we would look like, but you know, lunatics. We would look like you know, sometimes just horrible people. Um, we don't necessarily control all those thoughts. Those things just, you know, again, who knows why we're having them? But you know, being somewhat amused and going and, and not and, and creating that space. I am not my thoughts. Um, has really been helpful for me. That's a great saying. I actually just looked at the clock, and we just turned an hour and thirty minutes. And I mean, this has been a phenomenal business conversation with some really, really substantial context of the advice that you've given and and not actually it's not advice you've been very good about not giving advice you've been very good about just being aware of certain things to think about when it comes to your business to about growing your business i think that we're moving into this conversation that goes beyond love to have you back 
if you're interested in being back on the podcast, I'd, I'd love to get you back and have some conversation about this. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, I think when people, people are listening from the perspective of where they are in their lives and, you know, I, as a young businessman would, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to listen to a podcast about someone talking about meditation and mindfulness and letting go. I'd have been like, that guy has got no freaking idea what's important. Or, or, or where I am in this current situation in my business. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, you know, very happy to have another conversation about, about that because I think, you know, achievement and fulfillment are different. And, and they can feed each other, they're related to each other, but they aren't the same thing. Like we can have massive achievement without fulfillment. We can also have fulfillment without achievement. Ideally, we can do both. For me personally, fulfillment wasn't something I was happy to allow myself to have until I'd reached a level of achievement. But then there was a point where it was like, okay, if I continue to raise that bar, I'll never be happy. You're obviously right. It's worth, you know, having a different conversation, which may be more related to that sort of fulfillment side of things. You know, the one thing I would just chime in on that thought is I didn't know that you could have both. I didn't know you could have uh, fulfillment and achievement yeah. at the same time. And, and the joyfulness, it's like, I mean, I walk around my house, I have so much gratitude and so much joy and joyfulness now. I didn't know how to get there, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, I probably not sure I knew how to get there five years ago. I think I was kind of on the move towards it, but um, I think it's a, a be an interesting conversation. Gratitude is absolutely key to fulfillment. Um, you know, it's the combination for me of that sort of meditation and gratitude has been has been the key. I, I chuckled the other day when I heard someone saying, and I've heard the saying before, but you know, they're, they're saying you can't be rich and happy. Well, maybe you can. You can. You can. We'll end it on this gratitude piece because that's what maybe we'll bring you back to do. And I just. And I would actually like to spend more time talking to you about what you're doing with this breathing because I know it's been phenomenal. I am not done it, I'll be honest. Uh, I want to do it. You know, I'm obviously struggling with my, uh, with my current, I have to really, what I would have to do is adjust my daily routine. And that, that is for me, one of the bigger things that I'll have to look at. But, you know, what you're doing with this breathing and the, the level of fulfillment that you're receiving from it is, is off the chart. So, and it allows you to just, it also opens that door to be, to really actually be grateful. You know, I think in personal development, there was a, you know, write down what you're grateful for and say it every, you know, but I didn't feel it. And I think you've got to open that door to really feel it. You know, my daughter, Zara and Flossie, I, you know, love them more than anything. My partner, Julia, I love her so much. You know, Ernie, my dog, you know, they're all these, you know, where we live, what the, the life we've created, going to horse events and things, I can just appreciate it now in a way that in the past, I just wasn't there and I wasn't happy. So I think it is worthwhile. We all have our own journey to get there. Yeah. Well, it's a worthy conversation. And honestly, you, you know, when you look from a business standpoint, you spend all this time and energy, you know, trying to create some type of success around your business and it becomes your yep. total focus. Uh, and, and there's other th things out there to consider and let's have you back and, and have a chat about that. If you're, if you're willing. Sounds good, buddy. Thank you so much, Sam. Where can people find you if you want to be found? 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm pretty happy. I'm not really looking to be found. But, you know, I, I'll post every week. I post my musings um, so they can follow me at Dr. Sam Hazeldine. That's D-R, D-R obviously, S-A-M-H-A-Z-L-E-D-I-N-E. Um, uh, Dr. Sam Hazeldine on Instagram or Dr. Sam Hazeldine on LinkedIn. You know, I'll post my thoughts. I'll post my musings. But, yeah, yeah. I heard your interview with Kurt Cronin. Incredible guy, incredible interview. I'm not going to be uh, sharing my cell phone number at this point in time. <laughs> that just was like, for a guy who's got a lot on his plate, all right, courage to you, brother. He's committed. <laughs> he's, he is committed. <laughs> yeah, no, I loved it. I loved it. But that, but that's Kurt. Kurt is, you know, he's a guy who gives and is, he's got such a huge heart. So I'm far more selfish than Kurt. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, listen, you're not selfish. I appreciate your time. There's a lot here for a lot of people and uh, God bless you, brother. Like, seriously, I really, I love you and I appreciate you being here and uh, it means the world to me and thanks for sharing. Thank you. I love you too, brother. And it's been real, it's been a great conversation about things that we necessarily haven't discussed, even though we've known each other for a decade. So it's been, it's been, it's been a real pleasure, real privilege and uh, yeah, very happy. Look, looking forward to round two. That's why I'm doing this thing because it's like as long as I've known you, you know, there's a lot of this stuff we haven't talked about. So it's it it takes things to a different level. So appreciate you, brother. Thanks, Th- mate. Thank you so appreciate much. It. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being with us. If you found value in the show and know a friend or a coworker who could benefit from the conversation, please share the link via text or on social media. Remember, each share creates a ripple effect of knowledge and inspiration. We'll see you next week. The views, information, or opinions expressed by guests during the Business of Doing Business podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Dwayne Kerrigan and his affiliates. Dwayne Kerrigan, or the Business of Doing Business podcast, is not responsible for and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. Listeners are advised to consult with a qualified professional or specialist before making any decisions based on the content of this podcast.